Matthew chapter 23, this morning we'll begin in verse 13, and we're going to consider Jesus' words through verse 33. The context, Jesus um, is standing in the temple precincts. There has been a large crowd gathered around him. The previous day, he cleaned house. He literally kicked out the, the uh, sellers of wares and, and purified the temple and He's been teaching, he's been confronting the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the political leaders, the followers of Herod. He's been attacked, he's been um, assailed in a verbal way. He has withstood those attacks. And he has begun now in his last days of ministry to the nation of Israel as he is being rejected as their Messiah He is going to be crucified for their sins and for ours. He is in love and in judgment, warning the people, warning his disciples, and giving a foretaste of the judgment to come and what he has to say about these false leaders, these false teachers, particularly the Pharisees and scribes. So with that in mind... Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Chapter 23, verse 13. Jesus said, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, Because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves." Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important? the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering. Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things that you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. 
You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish of the dish so that you so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Amen. It's the word of our Lord. Let's pray. God, we're scared. I'm scared. What a dangerous thing to hear these words of the Lord Jesus, and especially to preach them with even the possibility that we would be guilty ourselves of hypocrisy. So we beg of you, in humility this morning, have mercy upon us, O God. And see that what Jesus said of the Pharisees may not be true of us. For we do not want to stand before the Lord Jesus and have him judge us as he judged these men. So we pray that your gracious spirit now, the spirit of Christ, would come. Grant us understanding. But more than mere understanding, we pray for repentance where necessary in each one of us. We pray for truth and sincerity in our innermost being and the core and the heart of this local church. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is one of the most sobering passages of Scripture I've ever read publicly. And there are many in the Bible that are heavy and weighty. But this surely has to be one of the foremost. Because here we hear Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, our Lord and our King, entering into judgment with a specific group of men at that time. And we receive a foretaste of what his judgment is like. It's shocking to us if we're reading it at face value. It's amazing that there are still those who sometimes say that some of the apostles like Paul are, or Peter are lacking grace, but Jesus is always gracious. It's a false 
dichotomy, a false division that's not in the scriptures. And we see here that the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, the one who is gentle and lowly of heart, the one who has come to preach good news to the captives and to set them free, the one who is loving and kind and patient like no other, is also full of indignation towards religious hypocrisy. And more than being full of it, he is willing and ready to stand up and to render judgment upon those who are guilty of the kind of hypocrisy that he talks about here. It's a heavy text. And I'm not being facetious when I say that it scares me. The reality is, based on this text, God forbid if I should be in hypocrisy or grow in hypocrisy, this is a foretaste of what I can expect to hear from the Lord as a teacher in his church. You're actually in danger this morning, every one of you. I know church is supposed to be a safe place, and in reality, this is the safest place on earth. But it's only safe for the truth. And if you're here this morning, and and you're in hypocrisy, and you know it, and God knows it, and you're hearing these words of Jesus read, and you go out from this place, and you continue on in your, your hypocrisy, You are potentially, by even being here this morning, only adding to your judgment. Right? So, we need to understand what Jesus is after. And it is a heavy text. I I want to look at it with you. And again, it's rather easy for us to focus on the Pharisees and the scribes, these characters who were the dominant pastors, if you will, of that time. They were the shepherds, the spiritual shepherds that the people looked to. They were most often the men in the synagogue. They were the ones that the people didn't have any choice but to revere as their spiritual leaders. And it's easy for us, rather easy for us, to to beat up on the Pharisees. As I said before, who doesn't like to, to take a hit at the Pharisees? Because by now... They've become infamous to us as synonymous with religious hypocrisy. But in our focus, perhaps, on the Pharisees, we can be, like them, blind to ourselves and our own hypocrisies. And we can be, perhaps, blind to seeing how this kind of spiritual hypocrisy can work its way into the leadership of Yes, evangelical churches. So we need to, as we've prayed, ask God to help us. And I hope to be helpful to you this morning in not only explaining the text, but but also helping you think about how we might, under the intent of the Holy Scriptures and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, use this text. Because there aren't any Pharisees here this morning, not really. There's there's no scribes or Pharisees here. 
I mean, we might say, well, yeah, there's some fair. No, but there are no actual historical Pharisees or scribes. So it would be easy for us here this morning to come and to have a historical study on these really bad guys nearly 2,000 years ago. But these scriptures were not given as a mere historical document, but for our instruction today. So before we get into some of the text, the details, I, I want to just orient you to how we might ask God to use this text in our lives. The first is, and I want to begin with this and I want to end with this, is again to have our eyes on our king. What a moment. What a king. He's come, son of God, and humbled himself, became a baby, grew as a man, and then entered into ministry. He's been teaching and preaching about the kingdom. He's been healing men and women. He's been demonstrating that he is, in fact, the promised Messiah. He has rebuked the Pharisees and scribes before, but now standing in the temple in Jerusalem, Holy Week, with perhaps up to a million people gathered in the surrounding countryside, massive throng, a crowd there in the temple with the scribes and Pharisees in his presence, Jesus, our Lord, has received their verbal assaults and now he stands up and speaks to the most powerful and influential men in the nation and condemns them. Can you imagine how quiet it was when this man stands up with the authority of God and fire in his eyes, looking? The scribes and Pharisees are still there. He's, the crowd's there. They're witnessing this. But he's, he's looking at these revered spiritual leaders, and he calls them out again and again. Scribes and Pharisees. You hypocrites. Wow. This is our king. And it ought to move our hearts with love for him this morning. That he is of such courage and of such authority and such majesty and such holiness. He enters into judgment and we are to fear him, but he also is warning the people he is in compassion warning all who will hear do not listen to these men that's huge he's basically telling a whole generation you need to you need to get rid of your pastors that's what happened in the protestant reformation right it was that kind of change you You need to not follow the priests anymore. You need to follow the word of God. This is a majestic moment in which Jesus speaks to an entire generation and tells them, you need a whole new set of leaders, leaders after my own heart, because these men are hypocrites. Tells them to their face. And we've noted this before, but if our form of Christianity 
especially when it comes to churches and church leadership, has no place for confronting falsehood and error and hypocrisy straightforwardly with the kind of tone and kind of condemnation. If we have no place for that, then we have no place for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in his church, in his kingdom, he does not put up with this kind of nonsense, but confronts it head on and calls it for what it is publicly. It's amazing. And we are in awe of him. He is Jesus, meek and mild, but he is also Jesus, mighty, to save There's another pastoral application, obviously, that we are to consider those who lead us. Jesus is particularly speaking about hypocrites in leadership in this passage. The scribes and Pharisees are the spiritual leaders of the day. The Sadducees are kind of the elite, upper-crust religious establishment, but they're mostly... um, Kept, they're mostly uh, reserved for Jerusalem. The people don't really look up to them like they do the Pharisees. The Pharisees and scribes are the day-to-day religious leaders among the people, and they are have been they have been Jesus's most outright and vocal enemies. And so we are being told, we are being informed by the king, the head of the church, the king of the kingdom, as his servants, those who would trust in him, we are learning a hard lesson about what hypocrisy and leadership looks like and what hypocrisy and leadership leads to. And we need to take this seriously. There's so little discernment in our day. There's such a low bar that's held for those in leadership and of course it's possible for there to be deceit at a level that people are surprised we are not as believers in Jesus Christ to be always a suspecting people we are to love and to trust and to support and we are to remember that those who lead us unlike the Lord Jesus Christ are not perfect and wholly sanctified yet they are men like Peter who who show a zeal for the Lord and are generally faithful, but are prone to error. So our leaders are not perfect, but we are to be on the alert for some of the indicators of the potential of hypocrisy. And thirdly, as a way of pastoral application, we examine ourselves. Because hypocrisy is not limited to leadership. And in reality, wherever hypocrisy is found, it has an effect. The effect of a, a father who is, bears the name Christian but is a hypocrite has a profound effect upon his wife, his children. A wife who is a mother who is a hypocrite has a profound effect. Kids, siblings... If you're an older sibling and you say you love Jesus and you know in private of of your home with your siblings you are a hypocrite, that has a devastating, can have a devastating effect. Wherever hypocrisy is found, 
It is never alone and without consequence. So with that framework, as we look at the text together, I want to assert with you the importance of sincerity and truth in the kingdom. Sincerity and truth. We're learning about hypocrisy. Eight times at least Jesus addresses the Pharisees as hypocrites in this text. He spells out their hypocrisy. It is the most prominent characteristic of these false teachers. They are hypocrites. The opposite of hypocrisy is truth, is sincerity. It is the utmost value in the church, truth. You say, what about love? Well, love goes right with, if we're not loving, we're not truthful. But if we do not have the truth, we have nothing. Truth not only in doctrine, but truth as it works its way out in leadership and in our discipleship. And truth also has an aspect of intention. What is our intention? Am I sincere? Another word might be earnest. Am I earnest? Are we earnest about this? It is, it is the greatest value. It is of utmost importance. And it is very hard. Because all of us are born hypocrites, right? We are born in sin, with sin nature. We are born hypocrites. We are born liars, prone to lie. Doesn't mean everything we say is a lie. Doesn't mean that our, our lies are necessarily characterized overwhelmingly by hypocrisy, but we need to recognize I have a hypocritical heart. And even if I have truly been born of God, and even if I have a new nature within, even if I entrust in Christ, I still have the vestiges and the remaining pull, the temptation to hypocrisy. We are practiced in hypocrisy. And if we don't recognize that about ourselves, we are terribly naive. What is hypocrisy? It is professing outwardly, publicly to be one thing, to be true, to be right before God, and inwardly and privately and in reality to be something other altogether. We are practiced at keeping up appearances. We are practiced in our sinful nature at putting on a public persona and cultivating a private reality that's very different. So the value that we're learning about here that's close to Jesus' heart is the importance of truth and integrity, particularly when it comes to the leadership of God's people. It's more important than effectiveness It's more important than personality or persona. It's more important than appearance. Truth and sincerity. That leaders hold the truth of God accurately and rightly. That they teach it accurately and rightly. And here's here's the thing. 
they embody that truth in ever-increasing reality. So with that, asserting that value, let's look now at six characteristics of hypocrites that Jesus points out. There's at least six. We could find more. First of all, verse 13. Jesus, again, says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe. He issues seven woes. There's eight. You might notice in verse 14 in your Bible, might be in brackets. Um, That's because in the earliest manuscripts we have of the Gospel of Matthew, verse 14 is not found it is recorded in the gospel of mark and luke so it's it's good it's 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 just the question is whether it belongs in the gospel of matthew we will look at it together but whether it's seven or eight woes they are woes and jesus lifting up his voice in the temple can you can you imagine looking at these men and saying whoa pharisees and scribes hypocrites large crowd having the courage and the authority to pronounce judgment upon these men woe is a declaration of damnation you are in trouble you are headed for woe beyond telling woe eternal woe unending woe unimaginable Jesus is declaring to these men what he knows and what he can see is coming ahead for them and what they do not know. And it is not only a foretelling, but as the King of kings and Lord of lords, as the appointed Messiah, the Son of God, he is issuing judgment. It may be that, well, we know that not all the scribes and Pharisees ultimately experienced that woe for only a few days later only a few days later one pharisee by the name of nicodemus was involved in professing faith in christ nicodemus was among those that identified with christ after his death and burial and resurrection And I have no indication to say this, but Jesus had confronted Nicodemus before. We find that in John chapter 3. You must be born again. But one wonders if Nicodemus was here on this occasion, was standing among the scribes and Pharisees, and you wonder, you can only wonder, but you can imagine that Jesus' words here might have finally put Nicodemus over the tipping point where he said, I'm done with these guys, and I'm identifying with him. It was possible that this sermon was used of God in the salvation of a few Pharisees and scribes, but on the, by and large, they are condemned. Woe, woe, woe. So first of all, and I'm using the word hypocrites, I, I could say hypocritical leaders, leader hypocrites, but I'm just going to leave it to hypocrites. But we understand that the context is leaders. And I'm using the word hypocrites because that's what Jesus says repeatedly. Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. First of all, in verse 13, Jesus tells us that hypocrites 
keep others from the kingdom. We're learning what are the marks of hypocritical leadership. What are the devastating effects of hypocrisy and leadership? And Jesus is exposing it in front of everyone. And first of all, he says, he, he teaches us, he exposes the fact that hypocrites keep others from the kingdom. Jesus says, you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. These are the men who, of all men, knew the Old Testament scriptures, knew the promises of what the Messiah would be. They were equipped to look at Jesus' life and ministry and pick up on the characteristics that matched the prophecies of Isaiah, of Jeremiah, the Psalms. But instead, out of love for their own position and out of defense of their own sin, they denied Christ. They refused to acknowledge the patent truth, which was Jesus is the Messiah, the King. And in doing so, as the leaders, as they kept, as they refused to love and to submit to Jesus personally, because of their clout and because of their influence, they understandably then were a stumbling block to untold numbers of people believing that Jesus was the king. The fact that they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah influenced a whole generation. Now, the generation of Israelites, they too are guilty. And that will become clear towards the end of chapter 23. But hypocrites in leadership keep others from the kingdom. This is happening in our day in a devastating way. And so often very subtle. And yes, in evangelical churches. It's easier to see it, excuse me, in cults. Cults that add to the person of Christ it's easier to see, perhaps, in the Roman Catholic Church, which is much about show, is much about appearance, and does not really bring to men and women the gospel of God, lies to them in a formal manner in telling them that the work of Christ on the cross was never finished that Christ must be offered up again and again every Mass, and that even his work, even if he sacrificed again and again and again, it is not sufficient. You must do penance. You must do good works. You must buy indulgences. And even then, if you're fortunate, you'll get into purgatory. Those are obvious examples, but within evangelicalism, and I want to say evangelicalism because we are evangelicals. We are among Protestant evangelicals. We're examining ourselves. But how might this happen? How might this happen? Well, today, I think most frequently, evangelical pastors who would be guilty of this, and not all are, but the way that this happens is by keeping people from the true knowledge of the true character of the king. Keeping people from knowledge of the true nature and character of the king. 
emphasizing only one aspect of God's character as revealed in the scriptures, only one aspect of Christ's character revealed in the scriptures, but neglecting the whole witness of scripture. And so God and Christ become something other than what they are as presented in scripture as God and the Son of God. And while the name God or Father is used and Christ is used and even Holy Spirit, if you persistently Sunday after Sunday, week after week, month after month, year after year, withhold from people going to an evangelical church, some or large portions of the word of God and vast aspects of the revealed character of the majesty and the holiness of God, eventually you shut people off from the kingdom because they no longer even know the king. And because they no longer know the king, their understanding of the good news, the gospel changes. Because like Roman Catholics, in the Roman Catholic gospel, God is no longer so holy, so majestic, and a God who is fierce in his judgment upon sin. God is no longer, as he's revealed in scriptures, holy, such that his grace means that he just accepts me for who I am, which is really no different than a Roman Catholic gospel of salvation by works. Saying that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, but after all, come to find out, because God is not the God of the Bible, your sins aren't really so sinful. And so you really are shut off from the kingdom because the gospel that you believed is not a gospel that saves from the wrath to come. In this way, the old gospel, the gospel of the scriptures becomes a new gospel because it's, being, it's about being made right with a king that doesn't exist in reality and cannot be found in the Bible. It's a salvation of personal fulfillment and healing and realization rather than salvation from judgment and from hell and from woe. It's a promise of a better life here and now, most famously promulgated by Joel Olstein. but there's an army of professing evangelical pastors who in more subtle ways constantly direct men and women to tweaking their life a little bit, getting on Team Jesus, doing something good for Jesus in the community, and week after week, month after month, robbing the people of the knowledge of God and of Christ and of salvation. It's evil to be told that you don't really have to repent. You actually don't really have to make much of an adjustment at all. It's a lie. The hypocrites shut off the kingdom, keep others from the kingdom. Secondly, verse 15. Well, 
we can comment on verse 14. Excuse me. Perhaps we can, we'll, we'll add in this second point. I'll reorder my points. Secondly, religious leaders, <clears throat> hypocritical leaders, present a false view of religion. <clears throat> they present a false view of religion, or if we put it, a false impression of righteousness. Jesus says, verse 14, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. This is just religiosity. This is just platforming. This is just showing the part. And it ultimately gets found out, and it is devastating in its effect. Some of you have been touched personally by sad examples of religious leaders or pastors that you trusted that you believed in, that you listened to. You heard their prayers. You watched them worship. And then maybe you learned that their children told you that, come to find out that dad was a bear at home. He was, he was anything but what he was publicly. Or worse, he talked about marriage taught couples about marriage and counseled, and come to find out he was unfaithful. That has a devastating effect. It turns off an entire generation. If that's what religion is, if that's what Christianity is, I don't want anything to do with it. Thirdly, verse 15. Hypocrites lead others away from the kingdom. They not only shut others off from the kingdom... They not only present a false impression of kingdom life, what the kingdom's like, they, re- they lead others away from the kingdom. Jesus points out that the Pharisees and scribes were missionaries. They were zealous in their hypocrisy. They, they wanted others to be like them, and they worked hard at it. They went all around the Mediterranean world. They used the Roman Empire's period of relative peace, and they traveled all around to make one proselyte, one follower, one devotee. So they not only shut most people off, but they make efforts to make others like them. And in so doing, Jesus says, you make them as much a son of hell as yourselves. Now, did that just come out of the mouth of Jesus? Yes. He just called these men sons of hell, and he's not saying they're a biker gang. And it's a tragedy in our day that men who are full of themselves, full of their their vision, that has nothing to do with the word of God, who have been reading the latest hip, cool, trendy theologian, take the church off on one journey after another and they're not content to just do that but they work hard to make others like them directing them not firstly to the scriptures not to the bible not to the study of scriptures but to their book that they wrote or their series of books they make them disciples not of christ 
but of themselves. Fourthly, verses 16 through 22, hypocrites remove the fear of God. They remove the fear of God. Jesus says, Woe to you, blind guides, verse 16. Whoever swears by the temple, that's nothing, but whoever swears by the gold, the temple is obligated. So Jesus is giving a few examples here of, of the kind of religious maneuvering that the Pharisees engage in, the kind of legalistic nonsense where they can maintain godless, irreverent living with the veil of religiosity. They specialize in making up technicalities. They specialize in making up technicalities. They, they, in order to uphold their superstructure of self-righteousness, they impose upon the people all these ridiculous lines of reasoning. So, for example, in order to maintain, you know, to avoid the, the commandment, breaking the commandment, you shall not bear false witness, they know lying is bad, but, you know, we all lie. So, so they come up with this system and they say, well, if you're going to make an oath, if, if, here's how it works. If you, happen, if you make your oath by the temple and you break it, that's okay. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, that's not okay. You've got to follow through with it. What? It sounds silly to us. Or, or look at um, verse 18. Whoever swears by the altar, that's nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he's obligated. Verse 21, Jesus says in rebuking, he says, Whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. They had a feigned, fake reverence for God and for his name. They knew they shouldn't blaspheme. They, they knew that they shouldn't technically use the Lord's name in vain. So instead of referring to God, they would, they would fake reverence by saying, may heaven help me, for example. They would, they, would, they would seem that they were so reverent that they wouldn't even mention the name of God. They would just refer to heaven. All of this was an effort to cover over their irreverence. The reality is, at the core of all of what's going on here, all this all these technicalities, all this saying, well, I'm not blaspheming if I say, by heaven. What's at the root of it is a lack of the fear of God. They've removed the fear of God. I've gotten in trouble with some I love by pointing out that we're really not that much difference. I know, somebody, here we go. Holy cow. It's a joke. I don't use it all the time. I've used it a lot in my life. Come on, what is it for? It's a technical aversion of swearing holy Christ. 
Oh, congratulations, holy cow, you avoided blaspheming Christ. One of the most common, geez. Oh, congratulations, you avoided using your Savior who died for you, Jesus, by just changing a few letters and saying geez instead of saying Jesus. Oh, we're not so different. Oh, my gosh. Wow, that's hugely different from, oh, my God. It's so common to us. It's so part of the warp and woof of our lives. We're not even sensitive to it. But what's at the root of that? So, so some might misunderstand me. Oh, boy, I better not say geez around Pastor Gabe or holy cow. Uh, you're missing the point. That's not the point. Do you love that God and love that Christ so that you wouldn't do anything to even come remotely close to demeaning his name? That's what it's about, not the technicalities of, is that a swear or isn't it? It's about God. The love and fear of him. If anyone did that with your wife's name and just changed a few syllables, you'd be incensed and you'd be sensitive because you love her, you adore her. You wouldn't want her name to be trampled under feet. That's just an example of how we can engage in this kind of technical maneuvering as well. Again, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have hypocritical hearts. We specialize. It's too easy for us. And what Jesus is doing is exposing the root of it. He's not dealing with the flowers and the leaves. He's going at the root and he's confronting these men You do not love and fear God. That's how you can come up with this kind of technical system. If you swear by the temple, that's okay. But if it's by the gold, you're in trouble. That kind of maneuvering is worse than silly. Demeans God. Demeans Christ. And if you play at the game of religion long enough, people start to get it. Oh, he isn't really God. Jesus isn't all that great. And we wonder why whole generations have little fear of God these days. Fifthly, hypocrites abuse and dismiss the law of God, verses 23 through 24. Can, can I back up? Because I'm just, the main point today is not how you give an exclamation. And, and I just hope you know what I'm after is not... Uh, rooting out a list of ways of expressions. You see, it's at the heart. It's why we do what we do. Do we love God? Do we fear God? And that, if we fear him, I think that will lead to us examining even how we use our speech. Fifth, 
Hypocrites abuse and dismiss the law of God, verses 23 through 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. The scribes and Pharisees were famous for focusing on the minutiae of the Old Testament law and then adding to it their own innumerable extra laws, all in a supposed effort to avoid breaking one of the laws. And they had just heard Jesus answer one of the scribes. When the scribe asked the question, which is the greatest commandment, Jesus has just told them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. The whole law can be really revealed in that way. It's an expression of how you love God under the old covenant, and there are certain moral realities that carry over for us, and how you live with those around you in a loving way. The law is, firstly, a law of love. It's only a law of condemnation because of who we are, but in and of itself, it's an expression of love. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly as an expression of love to his Father, And to be around Jesus, you would have observed him obeying every detail of the law perfectly, down to the little ones, and you never would have felt like, oh boy, he's a legalist. To be in the presence of Jesus, I'm sure, would have been unnerving, would have been convicting, but most wonderful, because there's no one you could ever be with who would be more loving towards you, more thoughtful of you, more serving to you. The Pharisees and scribes focused on the minutiae and they neglected the weightier provisions of the law. Notice there that the Jesus teaches that there are, there are weightier and less weightier laws. That yes, there are, there are some commands that are of a higher priority. They all must be obeyed. It's like people say all sin is equal. No, no. All sin is equal to condemn, but nowhere does the Bible support that all sin is equal, else we would never have the word abomination. So the Pharisees and scribes neglected the, the major points. They, they did not love God. They, they, they cared more about tithing little herbs from their garden than they did ministering to the sick or serving others or coming alongside them as Jesus did. And so they abused the law of God. They took the law of God as given by God and they, they misunderstood it. They did not read it correctly, didn't want to. And then they, they, they twisted it, they mangled it and used it somehow to support their system of thinking. They're lawless living. And again, similar happens today, not with teaching on tithing of dill and cumin, these spices, herbs. I was told that uh, recently uh, uh, that uh, at a Christian college where I attended that um, one of the chapel speakers uh, in so many words, 
um, said that Jesus is a model for self-care and taught frequently on the importance of self-care. Uh, <laughs> okay, yeah, every one of us is made in the image of God, but you're neglecting the central witness of scriptures about God and salvation and the gospel and focusing on an obsession with our present moment. That's the kind of thing that goes on. Pastors who focus on their, their interest and just keep away at that, pound at that, and do not read and share and teach from the whole of Scriptures. And no wonder then we have lawless living among professing Christians. Is because there's little concern in those who lead us to know the law of God, to know it rightly, and to live it with reverence. Sixth, just two more. Hypocrites specialize in keeping up appearances while savoring sin in secret. Hypocrites specialize in keeping up appearances while savoring sin in secret. Jesus points out there the discrepancy between their public facade and their inward reality. Verses 25 through 28, this point covers two of the woes. They're similar. The first one, Jesus points out that they're obsessed about cleaning the outside of the cup. To maintain their ceremonial cleanness, the Pharisees would be obsessed with you know, was the cup that they were using clean? And, we, and by that, not just free of dirt, but was it ceremonially clean? They would obsess about the external cleanliness of even their drinking vessels, but cared little about what was going on inside their own hearts, which were full, verse 25, of robbery and self-indulgence. Likewise, verse 27, Jesus used an a, analogy or illustration that would have been familiar to everyone as you walked into Jerusalem there are burial grounds on various parts around the city and especially in the week of Passover to avoid becoming ceremonially unclean and unfit for going to the temple and worshiping and engaging in the Passover feast they would whitewash some of the tombs so that you would know where they are stay away from them but I suppose it was also a way of you know kind of keeping up appearances And uh, so you would see all these white, we call it painted, tombs, neatened up for for the sake of looking good for the Passover feast and helping people avoid ceremonially, ceremonial uncleanness. The Pharisees looked good on the outside. They, by all appearances, looked like the most religious men there were on the planet. And yet Jesus says, inside they are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Jesus has condemned, this is not the first time he's condemned them as being unclean. I neglected where he says that they swallow a gnat and a a camel. Those are both unclean animals, right? Right? So Jesus is accusing these men who are 
thought to be the most clean, the most righteous, the most sincere religious men, and he's condemning them as inwardly being corrupt. And this is perhaps where it's most dangerous for all of us. We need to not underestimate the ability of our hearts to maintain hypocrisy. Even if we, again, we're born again and we're a follower of Jesus Christ, we need to see hypocrisy not as something that is permanently rid from our hearts. Let me ask you this. Those of you who had a garden this this summer, uh, was your garden... Once you weeded it the first time, was it rid of weeds the rest of the garden and the rest of the summer? No. You just understand it. Here in New England especially, and trees around, you're going to weed, and you're going to weed, and you're going to weed. There's going to be a war. It's going to be the weed war. And whether it's in your lawn or in your garden, you understand that they're just going to keep coming and keep coming and keep coming until the frost comes. That distance between our public persona and the realities in the privacy of our own heart is is not a fixed reality. That's why the psalmist says, Oh God, unite my heart to fear your name. Bring there to be a closer proximity of the reality of my inner man, particularly when I'm in leadership. It's a terrifying thing a reality that how easy it is as a leader to engage in religious activities publicly reading preaching praying and inwardly to not believe it or practice it it's a constant war even if you truly love God and love Christ We need to be wary and not trust our own hearts because it is a devastating reality when it's in the when it's revealed in leaders because it will be found out. In the past two to three years alone, we have had publicly some of the most devastating recent revelations of a depth of hypocrisy among well-known leaders, spiritual leaders, like, like we can, hard to remember in, in, in recent time. One of the most devastating was Robbie Zacharias. So many of us appreciated his ministry, looked at his ministry. He was known worldwide, and to come find out he's an adulterer in a, after he dies, and it's just the, engaged in the kind of grossest kind of immorality. Think of the devastating effect that has had upon those who were aware of his ministry. Other names could be added to that. Jesus condemns these Pharisees as hypocrites. And we need to treat hypocrisy like radioactive nuclear waste. Loathe it. Guard against it. Hate it confess whenever we start to see a string of our hearts guard that our practice in private is a reality that comes within some measure of approximation in line with our public 
our sins will be found out. Jesus will expose everything. Hypocrites specialize in keeping up appearances while savoring sin in secret. Just quickly, we need to close. Sometimes, well, in these days, I'll just say, we as leaders, there's nothing becoming about sharing with everyone everything that's in your heart. We don't need to do that. We don't need to, (laughs) there's things we need to confess to God and to our, our others in our lives that know us well. We don't need to parade our faults before everybody. But we do need to model the reality that we are still sinners ourselves. And the place where it really is revealed is in our home. That's why the qualifications for elders and deacons starts with the home. Husband of one wife. He's known as devoted to his wife. He does not exasperate his children, loves them. Seventh and finally this morning, hypocrites violently oppose true teachers and preachers. Jesus points out in verse 29 and following, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You build the tombs of prophets and adorn monuments of the righteous. They said that they wouldn't have killed them, but here they are and they want to kill Jesus. It's hypocrisy. And those who are in hypocrisy entrenched in hypocrisy, hate truth and sincerity. Why? Because it threatens them. It threatens to tear down the whole house, tear down the whole charade. Hypocrisy is violently opposed to truth. Verbal, subtle, but ultimately violent. If someone is really upset about some aspect of truth, we have reason to wonder why. If, if someone were to come to you as, as a leader and, and point out something, if that leader is immediately defensive and seems like he is beyond being examined, they have a problem. Those who are men of truth and sincerity are humble willing to consider that they may be wrong and may have sinned and willing to acknowledge when they have done so. But hypocrites, oh, oh no, they cannot be wrong. They cannot be exposed and they will violently attempt to maintain their appearance of righteousness. These are heavy words. These are sobering. But our Lord is warning us about the dangers of hypocrisy, particularly when it is in leadership. But we want this morning, each one of us, to ask God to examine our hearts, examine our ways, to confess where the Spirit touches our hearts and puts his finger, as it were, on an area of our life which we know is flagrant hypocrisy. Confess it, flee from it, and ask God, oh God, make me true, make me sincere, remove hypocrisy from my life in ever-increasing measure until I am in your presence. Let's pray. Our Lord, these are heavy words that you have spoken to us this morning. We pray that they would 
go to the depths of our soul, but ultimately not to crush us and not to leave us in despair, but to expose the evil of hypocrisy that we might abhor it in ourselves first and then when we see it raise its ugly head in the leadership of your church. Oh God, I thank you so much that I serve with men who are above all earnest and sincere. It's a precious thing that by your grace in this church, I believe that what you see is what you get. And we understand that we are not all that we should be. But if there is and where there is hypocrisy in us as a leadership or among our membership in our church, we pray, God, that you would expose it gently, firmly, and that whether it's in the privacy of our heart, in our marriage, or in our home, that you would bring it to light, that we may walk in the truth. Help us to see the horrors of hypocrisy so that we can overcome the pain of humbling ourselves and know the peace of being made right with you and with one another. We pray, O God, for truth and love, love for you, love for one another, truth and love in your church above all. In Christ's name, amen.